0: Listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around
1: us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information,
0: please visit SouthPoint.org. Now,
1: those first two verses are pretty simple. Right? But I want to know from you this morning, um, what stood out to you from those two verses? Anybody? What stood out or what word or
0: phrase was really significant to you this morning from this first couple of verses? The earth is the Lord and those who dwell this in, they fullness. Yeah. He established it. Yeah. Anybody else? When we look at these, and yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, there's not a ton there. You're
1: like, I don't know what else he wants me to say. Uh, rivers. Okay, cool. When we look at these first couple of verses, we, we notice here, um, this is the psalmist David setting up the rest of this chapter. And so this is Um, what we would call kind of an introduction or almost a call to worship. We see here, if we notice even just in verse number one, he says the same thing twice, essentially, just using different words. He says, the earth is the Lord's and then the world. And literally that for the earth and the world is the ecology that contains all of life. So he's starting with this from a macro perspective, and then he's going to begin narrowing that down. But he says, the earth, everything, and then he uses this word fullness, like we just said, Christy, right? This fullness is everything that's there, the the fullness thereof, the animals, the plants, the bacteria, the fungi, everything that's there in the world is his, the world and those who dwell therein. Now, when it says those, guess who that is? Us. Us that's people. So he's saying everything, all encompassing. There's nothing here that is not the Lord's. And then in verse number two, it explains why verse number one is true. So look at verse number two with me. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He created everything that we see and those things that we don't see. He created everything for his will and for his pleasure. He created it. The Latin phrase is ex nihilo. Everybody say ex nihilo. Now, some folks are going to be like, hey, man, I don't, I didn't know this church. We're all about speaking in tongues. It's just, it's just different languages. We understand. It's, it's okay. X in the hilo. So that means he created it from nothing. What we see here is that nature is not divine. Creation is not parallel with God. So when we look at the tree, we don't say, oh, I'm going to worship the, the tree, and that's the same as God. No, God created that. Only Yahweh is divine. Only He is sovereign. Abraham Kuyper, and this got a couple of quotes for you this morning. But Abraham Kuyper, um, he said this in 1881, and he um, was in the Netherlands, and he was a theologian and a journalist. He said this: There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, "Mine." Every single inch of existence, he says, Mine. Over every part of land, sea, animal, person, stars, in the bottom of the ocean, God says, That is mine. When we look here, we have even these first two verses. It's a reminder, we can go back to the very beginning of the scriptures, Genesis 1 and 2, talk about how God created the world perfectly. Everything, this is the original design, everything is glorifying God perfectly. And we see it at the very end of the scriptures, if you go to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we see the same thing. This is the original design, is that we are all glorifying, worshiping God together as his people. That's the promise, so here in these first two verses, what we can call this entrance liturgy or kind of this, this introduction, this uh, call to worship for the reader, we see a couple of, we see, and then here's the, here's the big picture that I want us to see. It's the, it's the mutual advent of a sovereign God and fallen humanity. Because right here when this is written, we are infected with sin. And so David is not writing this. From from the perspective of Genesis 1 and 2 or Revelation 21 and 22, when all things are made right, he's saying we are sinners today in Psalm 24 and today in 2023. So we see here two worlds colliding. One is of a perfect God and one is of fallen humanity. Both of those things, they're running as fast as they can at each other. Boom. And we're going to see what happens when those two things collide for the rest of the chapter. Okay, everybody, with, everybody with me? So we see these two existences coming together. They're entering each other's spheres. Then we get to chapter three. Let's read verse, sorry, verse three. Let's read verses three through six together out loud. Everybody ready? Let's read this, and then we're gonna do the same thing. Look at verses three through six and see what's significant, what stands out. Verse three, let's read this together. Here we go. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek them, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Some of y'all are like, I don't know if I'm supposed to say the last word or not. Here we are saying other languages again, all right? That last word is, that was a test. That was just for fun. Um, So that last word is selah. Everybody say selah. That word selah means to stop and think about it. Meditate on what was just said. So that's what we're doing. So I'm going to give you about two minutes. Go back, stop, meditate, selah on those, those four verses right there. Verses three through six. Highlight, underline, circle, whatever you want to, and then we'll look at those middle four verses. Y'all good with
0: that? All right, knock it out. From verses three through six, what word or phrase, what stood out to you from those verses? Anybody? Pure heart. Yeah, who shall stand clean and pure? Yeah. What else? All of verse four. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Will receive righteousness. Mm Mm-hmm. You need His salvation, yeah. There's something necessary about that. Anybody else? Oof.
1: I gotta. <laughs> let me check with management real quick. <laughs> she has a question. Sorry. All right. Any, go ahead, Hannah. Do I have to? Let me. Do I have to answer your question? Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> we know who the boss
0: is. Yes, ma'am. Is he creating a standard? I am this. Everybody hear that question? So, is he setting a standard of qualification for who could go there with them? So, is he, let me. I, just, Sure, I would say yes to both,
1: and and we'll, and we'll see that throughout because because what stands out in verse four, right, Jake, and then the salvation that we require that is necessary for us—they're almost in contrast, right? When we when we look at—that's a good question, Hannah. So we'll look at that. That's basically the overarching question of my sermon. All right. So what does this mean? Because in here, in these verses, we have bad news and we have good news, essentially, right? Like that's, this, this seems like bad news and I thought the Bible was about
0: good news, all right? So we'll, we'll walk through it and that'll answer your question. Any other, anything else stand out? Yeah, the truth contains both of those things. Yeah, the truth is bad
1: news and good news. Something is only good because you understand bad. There's only bad news when good news is an option, right? No news is just news. It's either good or bad. So if we look at verse number three, what is the hill? And he says it again, what's the holy place? Anybody? So he says, who shall ascend the hill of the world? Who shall shall stand in his holy place? Understand the context here is David, Old Testament. So what is the hill or the holy place he's speaking of?
0: Mount Zion, yeah. What does Mount Zion represent, or what's another name for that? Temple Mount. What is occurring? What is at the Temple Mount? Why
1: is that so significant? Why is it holy? Sacrifice, yeah. Tabernacle, yeah. But why are those things significant? The presence of the Lord. So here we see who can enter into, who can stand, who can ascend in the presence of the Lord. Man, that, that sounds awesome. All right, so, so who gets to? Verse number four, the answer, who gets to? Here are the qualifications. The person who has clean hands, the person who is blameless, they have a pure heart, they're, they have pure motives, they have pure thoughts, emotions, emotions. They have a pure attitude, it says, um, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. This person is not a hypocrite. They don't, they don't put on a mask and say, hey, good morning, it's good to see you, brother. Now, me and my wife got in a huge knockdown, uh, knockdown, drag-out fight on the way here, but uh, praise God, it's good to see you. Yes, sir. Yes and amen. Anybody, any, any takers? <laughs> like, yeah, somebody else, it's not me. There's no deception. They do not swear deceitfully. In other words, here's what verse four is saying. So verse three is the question, who can enter into the presence of God? This, by the way, is not a rhetorical question because we see with the sacrifices, with the great high priest, with the temple, before that, with the tabernacle, someone did go in, the great, the high priest went into the presence of God Regularly. So the question is, who can go into the presence of God? Verse four is the answer. The person who loves God perfectly and the person who loves other people perfectly. Whoa. Anybody anybody volunteering to be the high priest this morning? Anybody? That's a pretty high standard. Am I right? So we get the first couple of verses. We're like, man, this is awesome. It's almost like if you're at a, at a wedding or at some sort of dance party. I don't know who goes to a dance party. I don't know why I said that, but let's just say you're at a wedding, all right? and uh you've got like an awesome song going on let's say it's uh the macarena you know you're doing this and you got the macarena you got the cha-cha slide whatever you're doing uh the cat or the cha-cha the casper slide i don't know these things i don't dance okay just look at me um i i can barely like stay standing without falling so but let's say and everybody's out there you're going verses one and two this is awesome uh the the glory of god yeah man we love singing these songs and then all of a sudden you get to verse number four you got to be perfect Whoa. It's like the d j went from the Macarena to like this slow jam, and the dance floor clears it's like whoa 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 i I thought this was going to be a lot of fun. this chapter stinks it's impossible i i can't reach that this whoa this this seems like really bad news for me. We see here David is washing us, and the Spirit of God is washing us in two things, the holiness of God, and he is confronting us face-to-face in the midst of our sinfulness. Both of those things, those two worlds are colliding right here in just these first few verses. Now, I said the context for this was David Old Testament. It is, but even more specifically, the context of this chapter is 2 Samuel chapter 6. And then you can go there and look at it. You can. I would encourage you. It's a really interesting chapter, Second Samuel chapter six. The Ark of the Covenant had been in uh, the possession had been stolen by the Philistines. Everybody say Philistines. Wrong. Some of you all said uh, Philistines. Everybody say Philistines. You ready? Philistines. All right, there we go. We've got to make sure the right uh, emphasis is on the proper syllable. So it, the Ark of the Covenant, I'm just kidding. You can say Philistines if you want to. My dad does that. You know, whatever. Uh, so the, the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant and they had captured it, taken it back to their land. And so the people of God had gone back. They had conquered, defeated the Philistines, and they had taken the Ark of the Covenant, and they were bringing it back to the temple, back to the Temple Mount, where it belonged. In the middle of that, there were these uh, long poles on either side, and they had put it on this this cart that was carried by oxen, and no one was supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant was where the presence of God was. So we can't come to the presence of God, right? Or else you're going to die. Okay, so they know that that's true, but as they're going through, uh, there's a guy, his name is Uzzah. Everybody say Uzzah. As, the, as they're going through the, uh, the cart that they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant on, it hits, kind of a, it hits a pothole, and as it does, the Ark of the Covenant starts to fall off of the cart. Well, Uzzah puts his hand up, and he touches the Ark of the Covenant. It seems like a really good thing to do, am I right? It, see, it seems really good. This is one of those chapters in the Bible, you're like, Really, God? Really? Like, Uzzah was trying to do the right thing. I'm not God. So, what happens to Uzzah? Boom, he drops dead immediately because he had touched the Ark of the Covenant. So, they take the Ark of the Covenant and they were right beside this guy's house. His name was Obed Edom. Everybody say, Obed Edom. Okay, his name is in 2 Samuel chapter 6. He's there, so they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We, we've got to fix the roads, okay? Before we take this thing any further, we don't want anybody else to die. So the Ark of the Covenant goes to Obed-Edom's house for a couple of months. Obed-Edom, because the presence of God is there, he is incredibly blessed. Um, like, he wins the lottery. Uh, he doesn't have to put gas in his car. Like, all the, like, it's just awesome. His bank account is just going up and up. His kids don't disobey. His, uh, his wife gets more beautiful. Like, it's... All those things aren't necessarily there. But Obed-Edom, his life is blessed because of the presence of God being there. After a few months, they get the road paved out. They're ready to go. And, and David says, okay, now we're going to continue taking the Ark of the Covenant all the way into Jerusalem, all the way into the temple. Here's what God tells him. It's all right there in, in that chapter. He says, I want you to every six feet stop with the Ark of the Covenant and create an altar and sacrifice two animals to me to be reminded of just how holy I am and just how sinful you are. Now, the distance from Obed-Edom's house to the temple was about 10 miles. Every six feet, you have to stop and make a sacrifice. You're like, yep, but come on, man. No, no, no. Come on, man, because you don't understand the holiness of God and you don't understand the sinfulness of mankind. But eventually, the Ark of the Covenant gets back to the temple. So he says here, we see these two things, this comparison and contrast between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. Can you just imagine for a second? I know for me, I think traffic is bad a lot of times. Can you imagine every six feet stopping to make a sacrifice. It's crazy. Here, I want us to see five things this morning, okay? Uh, Just five. The first one is this. The
0: presence of God and the beauty of heaven would crush us. You're like, hey man, I thought you said truth included bad news and good news. When does the good news part come up?
1: Hopefully we'll get there. But the presence of God and the beauty of heaven would crush us. You see, the kingship of Yahweh, the creator of the world, is like an asteroid that is coming to hit the earth. It's like Independence Day, right? We just had July 4. So it's like this asteroid is coming to the earth. Something has to happen. The earth cannot continue to exist, and the asteroid hit the earth. Something is going, something has to change. You can go back and look at old westerns when, uh, when there was a bad guy who came into town and he's going to have a, a gunfight with the sheriff of the town. Both of them are not going to coexist. It is impossible. Someone has to win and someone has to die. That's the presence of God. That's the beauty and the glory of heaven. G.K. Chesterton, another old theologian, he said this. He said that sin is the only part of Christian theology that can really be proved. Now, when I read this, I was like, "Eh, I feel like that's slightly hyperbolic. Like, we can prove some other stuff. Then I started thinking about it. I was like, man, every other doctrine requires faith. And we can explain it and we can work ourselves around it. But when we look around at the world, really, this kind of makes sense. Because sin is simultaneously the most controversial issue within Christianity. What's sin? What's not? Can we accept the person? Can we love the sinner and hate the sin? All these different things. And at the same time, outside of the church, it is the most accepted truth in all of the world. It is the place where in every single era, every single epoch, every religion, every philosophy, every culture, every single world leader, they're trying to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? It doesn't matter if you want to go back to Socrates or Plato. You can look at Freud, MLK, whatever it is. All of these guys, every single guy and lady, Mother Teresa, uh, Gandhi before us, they've been trying to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? We all recognize and understand that. That actually does not require faith. But the answer to that question, what is wrong with the world, is me. The answer to the question, what is wrong with the world, is you. We are what's wrong with the world. We are sinners. Here's the definition we're going to get for sin. So here's the second thing I want us to see this morning. Second of five. Here's the definition of sin. We have a variety of definitions of sin, but here's kind of a simple one. Any attempt to meet our deep needs by our own resources. Sin is any attempt to meet our deep needs by our own resources. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, so we talked about Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God created and everything was in perfect harmony, perfect relationship with Creator God. His holiness and His presence were there with Adam and Eve, and it worked out great. The presence of God, the beauty of heaven, did not crush them because they had not yet entered into sin. But then Genesis 3 happens. They disobey. They eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Immediately they have fallen into sin. And what do they do? Because they tried to meet their deep needs with their own resources, they continue to do that. They cover themselves with fig leaves. They run and hide. And friend, we're in the same exact place when we try to meet our deep needs with our own resources, then we come face to face with the fact that we are in desperate need of forgiveness. That's how you know that you're a sinner. Has anybody here, maybe this past week, you've, you've come to this ultimate, this deadly realization that you need forgiveness. And if you haven't, then you don't understand the concept of sin. Maybe another way of Asking that, have you ever, do you ever feel like you hear the enemy's voice in your head more than any other voice? Is there an overwhelming sense of condemnation because you have tried to meet your deep
0: need with your own resources? The life that you portray to those around
1: you, you know it's not true of what's happening inside of you. You feel like a sham. You feel like if somebody knew actually what was happening inside of your heart, inside of your mind, what you were doing in private, what you were hiding, they'd be like, wait, man, you are a complete hypocrite. You're living in complete falsehood. Do you ever feel defeated? Is the strongest voice in your head at times, is it, Hey, you are not a man or woman of a pure heart. You don't have clean hands. That's how you know you've come face to face with the fact that you are trying to meet your deep needs with your own resources. And can I tell you this this morning? The same words that Jesus said to the woman who was caught in adultery are true for us this morning. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. So even in the midst of our sinfulness, even as we we spend most of our lives here trying to meet our deep needs with our own resources, we feel defeated. We feel like we have to take our, our sin and we have to hide it over here. Even though we feel this great guilt and this shame, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And here's why. Here's the third thing. That love that you cannot seem to outrun is the only thing powerful enough to change you. The love that you cannot seem to outrun. So even though you spend most of your time meeting your deep needs in and of your own resources, there is still a love that is pursuing you. That, by the way, Bill, is where the good news comes in. Amen? God did not compromise his nature and his character. He did not compromise his holiness. He can't. If he did, he would not any longer be holy. He would no longer be perfect. He would no longer be worthy of our worship. He would no longer be God. But God did not compromise his nature and lower his standard of holiness. Because remember when he goes into the garden, Adam and Eve are over here hiding in shame. What does he say? He says, where are you? Which is a Jewish idiom, a Hebrew idiom for saying Come and be clean. Come confess yourself to me. Where are you? I want to see you. We see the same idea here in verse number five. So we have to have clean hands. We can't do that. Verse four is a condemnation in and of our sin. But here's the thing, friend. We don't have to read verse four and say, Man, I'm condemned. There is no hope for me. In fact, verse number four is simply a diagnosis. This is the reality. We can all agree on sin. Christian or not, something is wrong with the world. But look at verse number five. He, the person, uh, who shall ascend the Lord? Who has clean hands? How do we do that? He must receive. He will receive blessing from the Lord. Now that word receive right there, by the way, in the Hebrew is a passive word. It means this is going to be imputed to you. You can do nothing to receive it. It is only a gift. It has to be given to you. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't have the right family history. You can't be pretty enough. You can't be rich enough. You can't be good enough. You can only receive it. There's nothing you can do. All of your good works are useless, but he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation. Here's the fourth thing. God cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance even when Adam and Eve in their sinfulness and in their shame came over here and ran and they hid. No, 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 we we can't be in the presence and the holiness of God, that's not for us. God says, no, no, I, I want to be in relationship with you. I am pursuing you, I am running after you because we are created in the image of God. His heart is too bound up with ours. That's his love. That's his grace that we talked about. That's his character. That's his nature. That's his holiness in action. He is pursuing us. His heart is bound with yours. He does not want to exist without you. Can he? Sure, absolutely. Does he want to? No. He is pursuing you, friend. He is pursuing you with his love. And the beauty of the gospel is this. If you look in, if, if you were to do the math, because I did, uh, if you take that 10 miles between Obed-Edom's house and the temple, every six feet, guess how many sacrifices had to be made? Nearly 9,000. We look back and we're like, man, that's crazy. It's only crazy if we don't understand the holiness and the perfection of God. It's only crazy if we do not understand and come face to face with our own brokenness and sinfulness and shame. But here's the beauty of the gospel, is that we don't have to make sacrifices week in, week out. We don't have to make thousands of sacrifices because Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest who was sacrificed once and for all. We are the ones who receive his righteousness that we see here in verse number 5. Such is a generation of those who seek him. Verse six, who seek his face. When it says the word face here, there's an intimacy. He's saying, you're coming face to face with me. You can be brought back into the presence of God. In the midst of the, it, all of your clean hands, you haven't done that. You don't have a pure heart, but you have received blessing from the Lord. And now you can be brought back into his presence, back into relationship with him. That's the beauty of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. Now I want to look at these last four verses. Here we're gonna see this king of glory. And just a, just a heads up, uh, Spurgeon actually called, uh, the chapter 24, he calls this the Psalm of Ascension. And he, the key of glory here is referencing Jesus Christ. And if you look at the at the context of chapter 22, 23, and then 24, we see in chapter 22 of Psalms, we see that it, it Uh, points to Jesus Christ being sacrificed on the cross. Psalm 23 is a reminder for us that Jesus Christ identifies with us in life, in death, and in resurrection. And then Psalm 24 talks about the kingship and the glory of Jesus, who after he was raised back to life, is now he ascended. That's why it's called the Psalm of Ascension. He is ascended back up into heaven where he is the king of glory for all time. So let's look at verses 7 through 10. I'm going to give you just uh, about a minute, minute and a half. Uh, And I want you to, uh, to look at these verses. Let's read these together out loud. And then I'll give you just a little bit of time to go through and highlight, underline. So let's read these together. Here we go. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. All right, let's stop and meditate on that, uh, on those last few verses, and then we'll jump back in and we'll close this chapter out. What stood out to you? What word or phrase stood out to you from those last four verses? Or anything that was especially
0: noteworthy? Anybody? May come in. The exclamation points. Nice. The emphasis and the excitement that the exclamation points bring. Yeah. Anybody else? Strong and mighty. Yeah, the repetition of King of Glory. Five times it's mentioned here, just in those four verses. Right here. Mighty in battle. Yeah, what are you going to say? The title Lord of Hosts. Yeah. Yeah. And when we
1: go back in, we remember verses one and two, the way that we were created. There is no other option than for the existence of God and the existence of man to be brought together. That is the created order. That is how we exist, is in the presence of God. He is omnipresent. There's nowhere that we can go. Where shall I go to flee from your presence, Psalm 139? I can't go anywhere. Everywhere I go, there you are in heaven and in Sheol, every part of the earth you are there. So here's the thing, friend, the king of glory cannot be resisted. We we have to coexist with him. We have to be in the same sphere as him. There is no negotiation that can be made that says, okay, can you just keep your distance? Because of my sinfulness, I don't want to interact with your holiness. No, no, there is no other option. There's no negotiation. There's no, he cannot remain at a reasonable distance. There is no other power that shares a lordship over us than that of King Jesus. And when the King of glory comes, listen, when the King of glory shows up and when those two worlds collide, someone has to die. Someone has to die.
0: And here's the good news of the gospel is that rather than kill Jesus chose to die.
1: Rather than just demolish us, Jesus in his love, in his grace, chose to die in our place. He gave up, he surrendered. Colossians 1 verses 21 and 22 says, and you, by the way, you can fill in your name right there. And you, Michael, Chaz, Bill, Alex, Linda, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, today, July 9th, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, before him, before his face. And in his death, death was crushed so that we do not have to die in the same way. Amen? Death has been crushed. He took the wrath of God on himself. That is what is required of anyone, anything that's going to be in his presence. If you are sinful, you require the wrath of God because of your sin. But Jesus came down and identified with you, identified with me, and took the wrath of God on himself as a perfect sacrifice, as a perfect holy high priest. Philippians 2 says this, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, Jesus Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's as bad as it gets. Therefore, Because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And Romans chapter six says this in verses four and five, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. When? When we get to heaven one day? No, today. Today. Today, we've been offered life today in Christ today. It's available to us when? Today. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He says, surrender, put to death this life. Find life in Jesus, the true ultimate king of glory If you look at verses, you you see here, and and somebody mentioned, maybe, uh, I don't know if you you mentioned it, uh, but if you see here the the comparison between verses 7 and 9, they're almost the exact same verses. If you look at verses 8 and 10, almost the exact same verses. So look at verses 8 and 10 with me. Who is this king of glory? The Lord. All caps, Yahweh. And he's looking forward to Jesus Christ here. Yahweh. He is the king of glory. Strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Look at verse number 10. Who is the king of glory? Again, he asked the question, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. He is our warrior king. And when he mentions the, the name host there, Chris, he's talking here about armies. He says, these are my hosts. These are my armies. I came down into your world. Our worlds collided. And when that happened, I came down and conquered your greatest enemy, which was death because of sin. I took on the wrath of the father on myself. I'm the one who fought for you. I am the Lord of hosts. He died that death that we deserve to die as our great warrior king. And then he rose back up into life. He prepped his troops for further battle. He says, I want you to take this good news to the ends of the earth and tell them that I am the king of glory of all things forever and ever. And then he ascended back up into heaven. And that's what we have in verses 7 and 9, that pair there. Lift up your heads, O gates. This is Christ coming back up into heaven as he is ascending. Lift up your heads, O gates. These are the gates of heaven. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Your king is here. He is finished with the battle. He has vanquished the enemy. Verse number nine, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. He is seated right now at the right hand of God the Father, but he has sent his spirit to us. In fact, Hebrews chapter 7 says this, for, if in, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Even today, friend, Jesus Christ is making intercession for us. While his work here on earth is done until he returns one day, right now he is still interceding on your behalf and on my behalf. That's his character. That's his love. That's his nature. He does not want to be separated from us. His heart is too bound with ours. Where are you? I'm pursuing you. I love you. That's the good news of the gospel. The only way for us to be in the presence and a relationship with Jesus Christ, with eternal God forever, is by coming face to face with the king of glory and saying, I don't want to be the king of my life. I want you to be the king of my life. That's it. We surrender to this one true king. He is the only way. There is no other. There's no other. The alternative to hiding We've said this here before. The alternative to hiding like Adam and Eve and our sinfulness and our shame, the alternative to coming over here and covering up with fig leaves, the alternative to trying to satisfy our own deep desires with our own resources, the alternative to to hiding, guess what? It's profound. The alternative to hiding is not hiding. That's it. That's the alternative. Here's the last thing that I want us to see. As we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when God forgives, friend, listen, there is not less of us, but there is more. He doesn't take our sin and say, okay, now part of you is gone. Now you've got to limp along. Now you've got to struggle along. Nope, it was a whole lot better when you had that sin. No, he restores, he makes us whole. He fulfills us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your background, whatever your parents did, whatever you look like, whatever your story is, however bad you think you are, whatever you looked at on the internet last night, however you spoke to your wife, however you disobeyed your parents, however you spent your money, whatever that is, as long as you have breath in your lungs this morning, God is not finished with your story. God is not finished with your story. And that's not because of you. It's because of him. It's because of his love and his grace. You don't have to go, you don't have to come before the presence of a holy God and say, Hey God, I want to bring all of myself except for this. little. Can you just forget about this? I don't have to tell you about this, right? No, no. We don't have to edit or erase any parts of our story. He calls us to confess, to repent, to believe, to find life in his presence by having faith in Jesus Christ.
0: That's it. That's the only hope we have in this life. In chapter 22, the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, he is a prophet,
1: He declares, here's the truth. I am the word of God. Here's what's going to happen to me. And he fulfilled that perfectly in his life. In chapter 23, he is a good shepherd who holds us. And he is sacrificed as our good shepherd for the sheep. That's for us. And then here in chapter 24, we see his glory. He is the king of all creation. And one day, like we saw in Philippians chapter two, one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. And I would plead with you this morning that you would surrender your life. The sacrifice has been paid. The the debt that you owed your life has been dealt with through the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is nothing else that you can do or have to do except place your faith, your hope in Jesus Christ. And that's it call out to him. We surrender to him. And you say, yeah, I did that back when I was eight years old, back at VBS. Man, that's awesome. We continue to do that as we press on towards the glory of God, who is king of all. We can experience life with him today. And as our two worlds collide, Jesus Christ says, I was put to death for you so that you can experience life As we celebrate this meal of communion, we know that the body of Christ was broken. It was broken for you, friend. The blood of Christ was poured out for you. It was poured out for me. He was broken so that we could be made whole. His blood was shed so that when God the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness that we talked about in verse number five. We have received the blessing and the righteousness from God in salvation. So this meal is for those of us who have placed their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And in our place, Jesus Christ ascended the hill, not just the holy hill, but the hill of Calvary. He was put to death so that he could offer us life. He was clean. He was lifted up. He makes us clean. He accepts us in. We can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. here's what I think is really really interesting. If you look back at the Old Testament, we see that the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, that's where the presence of God existed. And if you came into the presence of God without repenting, without confessing of sin first, you were going to die. In the New Testament, where do we see the most parallel example of the presence of God? what are we because the bible you know if we spend time we say okay what are the spiritual disciplines here's how we live what are the sacraments of the church what's the one thing that we do the one thing that the scriptures tell us to do where if you do them without repenting or confessing something bad can happen to you the lord's table Because if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, Paul says to them, some of y'all are partaking in the Lord's Supper with unworthy hearts. And he says, that's why some of y'all are getting sick. That's why some of y'all are dying. I would posit to you this morning that in in this New Testament era that we were in, the closest that we can get As a body of believers to the presence of Jesus is this time together with communion. So I would plead with you this morning. This is not just a symbol. This is not just symbolic. Okay, here's what I'm doing. It reminds me of something else. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, and I am going to be right there with you in your midst. Now, I'm not saying the presence of Jesus is like under it. I'm not saying the the bread turns into his body, the juice turns into his blood. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, as we take the bread and we dip it in the juice, we are saying, I want to be in the presence of a holy God. I want to come face to face with the creator of the universe. And the only way that I can do that is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So this morning, this is our hope This is a promise that we have. We have been given Jesus Christ. We're going to see him one day face to face in the future. And even now, we're reminded and we get to be in his presence together as his people. So examine your hearts. We're going to respond in faith as we do every single week here. Christ invites you to be one with him. He invites you into his presence even here and now. And as we leave, guess what you don't have to do? You don't have to take the bread and leave it here. Please don't, okay? A real gruesome picture. But as we go, we're taking the presence of God with us to the ends of the earth, to our homes, to the places we work, to the grocery store, to as we sit in traffic. And we're reminding ourselves and those around us that he is the king of glory. It's his power, it's his grace, is his love. So we surrender to that this morning. Family, you're
0: invited to join me even now as we remember and we celebrate the presence of Christ.